Be good. This is the Monkey Tooth Podcast. I'm Andrew. I'm here with my wife, Tiffany, and our little dog, Pele. We are in California at the moment. It is April the 20th. Things are strange, obviously. Um, There's a terrible virus going around that has killed like 40 plus thousand people in the U.S. and many thousands more around the world. And in the midst of that, there are people actively protesting um, government rules and regulations to to stay home or to not work and all these things, which are, um, yeah, it's, it's unusual. It feels like some sort of weird infringement upon one's liberties. Uh, however, there's real terrible shit happening in the world. As we speak, and today's guest is going to tell you about that. His name is Dr. Jonathan. Dr. Jonathan is a former co-worker and a current friend of my wife Tiffany's. Um, man, uh, this this guy has one hell of a job. He lives in Louisiana, works for kind of a large hospital group there, and um, he's in the ICU. He's going to tell you all about the, the doubling of their ICU capacity and then filling that capacity to the brim with uh, very, very sick people. Um, he is working right now as we speak. He is at work. He's, uh, it's incredible. And we're going to bring you um, his story right now. And uh, we've got a few other um, podcast recordings scheduled with friends and coworkers of, of Tiffany that have, uh, that are in New Orleans or in New York, uh, around the, around the country and are in the thick of, of this thing, uh, to bring you stories from what it's genuinely liked out, out there in a hospital for a nurse, for a doctor. Um, not everything that's interesting is very fun and not everything that's fun is very interesting, but, uh, this is, I think, worth hearing if you haven't heard these types of stories already. These are just just people trying to live and trying to help other people live. And uh, it's it's powerful. So I hope you get something out of this. I hope you share it with somebody. Maybe if you know someone who's in denial or, or feels like the price they're paying is too high. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's tough. I get it. I know we need to work. We need to pay our bills and, and eat. But man, we need to not have this situation happen in, in the hospital. My wife, uh, Tiffany goes back to work in a hospital next week. And, uh, I of course want her to be safe. And, uh, there's, there's a little, I would not do to, to make sure that she was safe at work. So 
keep that in mind um, if you're if you know somebody who's protesting or if you you're, yourself are protesting these um, these government issued directives I, I get it but uh, think of think of others because there are people whose lives are at risk right now anyhow I, I don't mean to be preachy I'm sorry I'm just uh, I am a little concerned about my wife and uh, about the many many people out there who are in danger and uh, at risk and again the guy you're about to hear from Dr. Jonathan gives me hope uh, because there are intelligent people out there who really really care and are, are doing their bit to help people survive this so give it a listen give it a share and uh, good luck stay safe we love you Enjoy this episode with our pal, Dr. Jonathan. My name is Jonathan, and I'm a critical care doctor, and I work at a, uh, a large hospital system in Louisiana. Great. And um, you and Tiffany uh, know each other from the past. Uh, you've worked together. Did you like working with Tiffany? That's was she, right. Was she cool? That's right. Tiffany, Tiffany and I have worked together in the ICU before, um, and um, yeah, that's how we know each other, working in the ICU together. I noticed you skipped whether or not you liked working with her. Did you do that on purpose? I wouldn't be giving you this interview if I didn't enjoy working with Tiffany. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Okay. Uh, how long have you been a physician? Oh, gosh. I graduated medical school in 2008. So I guess that means, what, 12 years, I guess, if we're adding it all up. Okay. 12 years. And the whole time, uh, have you been in the ICU the whole time? Well, when you get your medical degree, you still do residency and fellowship, which is your sub your your specialty and subspecialty. So um, I did internal medicine residency, which was an additional uh, three years after medical school, and then um, I did an additional three years for pulmonary critical care fellowship, which is an additional three years after that. So I graduated um, from pulmonary critical care fellowship in. 2013, if I'm doing the math correctly, 2014, yeah. So um, I've been in, in practice basically since 2014. So where I am now, I've, I've been in this position for about six years. Okay. So you've got a lot of experience with uh, breathing difficulty, I would say. Well, I mean, I do a lot of things. The, you know, the major reason that people end up in the intensive care unit is for organ failure. Um, when their organs are shutting down or when, you know, their typical hospital doctors have tried everything and things are not working. But to answer your question specifically, yes, the major reason that people end up in the intensive care unit um, is because they have difficulty breathing. Yeah. So right now, I would imagine, um, well, you tell me, I mean, what, what are you seeing down there right now? And right now is uh, April 19th, 2020 right in the midst of this crazy pandemic. What are, you, what are you seeing down there? Right, so what we're seeing now is, you know, we're still seeing a, a lot of people that are affected with coronavirus. Um, and of course, the major issue related to coronavirus that people have been um, educated about is difficulty related to breathing. Um, coronavirus is a virus that can affect a lot of parts of um, a person. But the thing that's probably the most significant um, issue is 
is inflammation in the lungs, which leads to difficulty related to breathing. And so it's been compared to influenza or it's been compared to prior versions of coronavirus like SARS or MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Um, this cropped up maybe five or six years ago. And so it's similar in that regard that it, that it causes difficulty breathing. But what's very diff- different this time around is that basically we don't have any experience as humans against this virus. And so our immune systems are not equipped to uh, fight any good fight um, against it. And so that's a major reason why people are so sick um, and succumbing so quickly to this virus. Yeah, I've, I've read about that and that, um, are, are you seeing other organ failure other than just lungs? I mean, are, and No, yeah, absolutely we are. We're seeing other organ failures too. Um, a lot of people who have coronavirus are also experiencing kidney failure. Um, there's also uh, a large number of people who are having um, temporary issues regarding their cognition or their brain function. Um, in many circumstances, people will come in with an extremely high fever and their loved ones, you know, will say that they've been talking out of their head for a day or two um, and they come to the hospital and they're not having difficulty breathing, at least initially. Mm. And it's just this issue of confusion or something like that. That's the reason for the family to send them to the hospital. And then um, almost everybody develops um, some difficulty related to breathing eventually. But how it gets started is a little bit different for different people. But we've seen, you know, we've seen brain issues, we've seen kidney issues. But you know, the 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 issue related to breathing is the predominant issue. Yeah. What what is your caseload right now? I mean, how many patients are you seeing in a day? So I will. Um, I'll go back to work tomorrow in a twenty bed ICU which is typically um, an ICU that's reserved for trauma patients. And this ICU was one of the first ICUs, um, or it was actually the third ICU that was converted to a corona, uh, coronavirus ICU. The hospital that I work at has, let's see, one, two, three, maybe three and a half or four ICUs on a normal day, kind of depending on the patient population. We have a trauma ICU, we have a medical ICU, we have a surgical ICU, and we have a neurocritical care ICU. And this has been all completely changed by what we're dealing with. And so what's happened is we've had two ICU areas. And so right now, um, we are functioning at twice the number of ICUs. So we're up to eight ICUs um, as opposed to the normal four ICUs just to keep up with the volume. And so tomorrow, I will be working in what was normally the trauma ICU, which is a 20-bed intensive care unit. And that was the unit that I worked in two weeks ago um, where things were really still kind of and the um, the upswing of um, of, uh, of sick people coming in, so it'll be a you know it'll be a full week for me for sure. Wow, how are you guys staffing all this? I mean, is it just everybody's doing a little bit more? Did you have to bring people in from around the world? I mean, how's this working? Well, we're not really having any help from outside. Um, 
what I'll say is that, of course, people within the organization are stepping up. You know, for instance, today I worked um, an extra shift on my week off to help out um, in the hospital. On Tuesday and Wednesday, I actually drove about an hour away to a small hospital in rural Louisiana um, who only has one ICU doctor who's been overwhelmed. Um, he's someone who was um, in the same training program I was at LSU, and I worked a 48-hour shift there, continuous, um, you know, work hours there. So we're all kind of just, you know, we're all com- coming together and doing what we can to make sure that people get what they need. Um, but at least at our hospital system, there's not been a whole lot of outside help. Um, and I think in part that's because we can really kind of, we can divide the work up and make it happen. We've not been in a situation where we, you know, need the outside help. We are working a whole lot harder than what we usually do, but I think it's a lot easier for us to put in some extra time than it is for us to ask for outside help in a way. So we've not um, we've not relied on any or much of any um, outside help in terms of uh, you know contracts for nursing or anything like that. Most of us have just kind of stepped up and done extra shifts. And so you know, again, I did extra shift today, um, and then I'll be starting a seven day uh, work week from seven a to seven p. So twelve hour days. I'm um, starting tomorrow. So we've all just kind of pitched in and covered extra shifts just to make ends meet. I mean, people in New Orleans and in all over Louisiana, they're just amazing. I know there's nurses coming out of retirement, people going back to the ICU who don't work there anymore. Um, so our hat's off to you guys. I can't. Yeah, I can't think, you know, we're, we're a culture that is a culture of adversity and stepping up when adversity happens. I mean, you know, people... Um, in places in the United States kind of have this, um, you know, this strong backbone. You know, you can think about um, what happens in the Gulf states when hurricane season comes around. You know, we all know that, you know, at some point from time to time we're going to have to step up and we're going to have to do without or we're going to have to be in a situation where resources are limited and we're going to have to um, endure some adversity. You know, in California, you know, people understand that earthquakes and wildfires are part of what they have to deal with. And, you know, in, ingrained in their culture is the knowledge that at some point they're going to have to stand, you know, stand up and do something extra. So, you know, it's not it's not foreign to us um, that we have to do something like this. What's foreign to us is the reason we're having to do what we're doing, because, of course, this is something we've never seen before. But it just gets back to kind of the, the core DNA um, of people who are in a profession where part of our job is providing for others. And, you know, that's doctors, that's nurses, that's really anybody who is in a position to serve other people. You know that at some point you're going to be called to serve um, above and beyond what your normal um, what your normal task is on any given day. Um, I told somebody a couple weeks ago that it's like our Super Bowl, and I don't mean to say that kind of in a – Um, kind of a fantastic or, um, um, you know, a comical kind of way. But, you know, doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and all of us, you know, we train to be able to to come together and to take care of people when things are, you know, at their worst. And we've not seen something like this in our lifetime um, up until now. And so it's a test. Um, it's, uh, It's an honor to serve. 
I wish it wasn't the way it was because people are dying, but at the same time, you know, we get trained, we get instilled, we practice for something like this, and it really gives us an opportunity to step up. So as terrible as it is that we have to endure this, it's really kind of a privilege to be in a situation where, you know, people need what we have, and they need it on, a, on any given day, but they need what we have to provide to them even more now. Um, and so it's, um, it's tiring, but it's rewarding, if that makes any sense. No, it does, man. There's something to be said for uh, disaster bringing out the best in in people. Um, I know you've got uh, you need sleep, man. That's coming up quick. I know it's getting late for you. Your your central time. So I want to keep keep cracking on. Um, I, I could talk to you about the. I mean, it's really actually kind of uplifting. The that no, sort I've of got some time to talk. We're good. Okay, <laughs> good. It just it it really is. It's a. Um, you know, if you just if you're just focused on the news or you're just focused on the um, the horrible aspects of this, which are very, it's easy to do. It's easy to to see that um, you miss out on how incredible people can be to one another, um, particularly right. particularly people who are so well versed in uh, dealing with disaster and and catastrophe, like people down in in the Gulf states and specifically in in Louisiana. I mean, you guys have just been through hell. I mean, you could almost kind of set your calendar to some horrible thing happening. Um, and, and we right. witnessed it. We witnessed the way people came together. I, I had a, a hurricane where I got to cook all the stuff in my freezer and uh, hang out with a bunch of people after a hurricane. And it was uh, it was like one of the better times I've ever had. Do you? And I know this sounds crazy. I mean, you're you're. We haven't even talked about the suffering that you're seeing, but. Is there any sense of having, um, I don't want to say fun with your coworkers, because like you were saying, it's not flippant or funny or, or comical, but do you feel like you're having like a, a meaningful, powerful time with your coworkers in any way? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, every time, at least, you know, I, I can say this now, it might be that in the weeks coming that I'm just bored and really kind of just ready for this to be over with. But, you know, every time I go to work, I really feel like I'm doing, it's not that it's more, I guess it's just more meaningful in the sense that what I'm doing is so much more important um, or more appreciated than what I would do on a normal day. And I mean, I know what my value is. But I think that, you know, most people um, who have never been sick before, they didn't know what a ventilator was. They didn't know what the ICU was. They didn't understand what life support was about. And so the average person now um, has a better appreciation for what we do in the ICU um, as ICU nurses or respiratory therapists or critical care doctors or whatever. Um, And to answer your question more specifically, I have felt more in the last couple of weeks, you know, when I look around and think about the people I'm working with, I don't want to call it a badge of honor, but that's the thing that kind of most easily comes to mind. I feel like, you know, five years or 10 years or 15 or 20 years from now, we're going to look back and this is going to be like that moment that really was the thing that was kind of the slaughter that held, um, you know, us all together to say, wow, you know, we got through this. You think about times of adversity, you think about 9-11, or you think about, 
you know, uh, World War II or things like that that we didn't really experience ourselves, but times that were really a test of humanity. And this is absolutely, this is, this is the most of the testing of, of humanity that we've seen in our lifetime, really, and, except for, you know, I think the Spanish flu or some other um, respiratory um, virus that happened like early in the 1900s. But I do feel like when I look around me, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is, this is, this is a moment in my life and my career where I'm serving um, next to people that I'm really proud to call my coworkers and my colleagues. And I feel like this is gonna be something where, you know, some time from now we look back and we just go, wow, you know, we really were there in the trenches together. We were really doing everything that we could. Um, we were really, you know, bringing our A game. We were making personal sacrifices to be here. Um, and it was a lot of work, but it was something that was, you know, most excellently rewarding. Um, so it, it's, I do feel like this is something that is maybe something that we can look back on despite the, you know, despite the, the toll that it's taken, um, on people's lives, we're going to be able to look back and say, wow, this is something that we really came together and we really made the best of it. Um, and there have been moments of um, joy or there have been moments of, um, you know, um, anarchy, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word. I mean, maybe about four weeks ago, I was in an ICU where things were closed down because it was our children's hospital. And our hospital system built a brand new children's hospital last year. And so there's an entire floor of our hospital that used to be where the children's hospital was that's been completely vacant um, and there are still beds and there are still lights that turn on and off and there are still, you know, coffee pots and there are still sinks and restrooms and things like that. It's as if people walked out, you know, a year and a half ago and everything just kind of stayed there um, suspended in time and really that's kind of the way it is. And so with everything that was happening about three or four weeks ago when all this was coming about, you know, we were able, we were very fortunate to be able to go into that area of the hospital and to dedicate that to coronavirus care and to turn the lights on literally and figuratively. Um, and so it was a situation where, you know, I was there and we didn't have supply rooms that were stocked or anything like that. We turned the lights on, we got the Lysol out, you know, I had a spray bottle and I had a towel and I was wiping things down. I wasn't waiting for anybody to come and do anything for me. We knew that we had patients that were coming in 12 hours. We knew that this area of the, um, that the hospital was gonna be filled up with patients in 24, 48 hours. Um, you know, I had, a, I had, a, I had a, a, a power drill, literally I had a power drill where I was taking shelves off the wall um, to make room for bigger beds because this was a pediatric area um, and we were gonna have adults there. I wasn't waiting for somebody from maintenance to come and move things around. Um, I was just taking ownership of the situation and just doing those things on my own. Um, and so, you know, we played music, we ate food um, in areas where normally hospital administrators would have, you know, really had an issue for us to be um, you know, eating food because it's a patient care area. I mean, there's uh, back to what I said earlier, it was like a, there's a certain amount of um, anarchy that was kind of uh, uh, pervasive 
amongst the staff where you know, the rules were kind of on suspension because we were focusing so much on getting things happening that we could play the music that we wanted to do. And I was having a Bluetooth speaker and we would pause and have like a dance, you know, a little like, a you know, two or three minutes to dance to a song or something like that. We were bringing our food in and we were making the space our own. And it was kind of this um, kind of an area or a time where you felt like the restrictions were kind of put on hold where you're not having people looking over you to tell you what you need to do. You had the torch in your hand. You were carrying it to the front of the line um, and you were doing what needed to be done. Um, and you weren't waiting for help and you weren't listening to people tell you what you needed to do. You really just kind of owned it. You stepped up, you made it happen and administration was there and they knew what was happening and they would come around and they would say, well, what else do you need? And that was really kind of a, um, an, an inspiring moment rather than being told what we need to do. We really kind of stepped up and said, we don't need to wait for you to tell us. We know what we need to do and we're going to do it. Um, and that was really empowering, I guess I could say, um, for doctors, for nurses, really for everybody that was involved. Yeah, no, I, I, I leave it to, uh, to people in Louisiana to, to bring up food and music (laughs) in a tragedy. But I, I like that, that, um, kind of taking agency of a problem without waiting for direction to do so. I think that's one of the things like that when people look back. Uh, I've talked about disaster psychology uh, before. It's a it's a fascinating thing that I think that adversity is sort of what we're wired for, in that we're wired to be altruistic and uh, helpful as a thing, as a species. I think that's our default mode. And these shit situations where everything just goes to hell in a handbasket, that's yeah. it triggers that, and you have to do that. And the, the altruistic and the most helpful thing is just to take charge, pop out the power drill, move the things, take you know, take control right. of the situation. And that's I think that's what we're well, wired to do. Interestingly, and I kind of I, I touched on this when you and I talked um, before we officially started the interview. Um, I was actually traveling. My 40th birthday was in January, and so I was actually traveling in South America when all of this was kind of coming around, I was um, getting ready to go on a cruise in Antarctica of all places. Um, And if you didn't know that you could cruise in Antarctica, here's your um, informational, um, uh, here's your recommendation to consider it as a place to cruise. It was absolutely phenomenal. But um, we were in Chile for about three or four days before going to um, Argentina and setting sail from the southern point of Argentina going down to Antarctica. And at that point, when we, um, when we were getting ready to go on the cruise, everything was still isolated to China. Nothing had come to the United States yet. And we had uh, 24 passengers. We were on a very small cruise ship, um, a luxury cruise ship with 150 passengers, and 24 of those were coming from China. Mm. And eight of those 24 that were coming from China were coming through Wuhan. And so I didn't know that that was what was going on, but we were, this would have been the third week of January, my birthday's the 24th, and we went down to South America the 25th and 26th, and we're down there for a few days before getting on the cruise. But they were screening us for temperature and, you know, asking questions about travel history and things like that. 
and to be honest with you, I, I mean, I, I felt inconvenienced, I guess is probably the best word for what they were trying to do to make sure that, you know, we didn't have coronavirus, you know, at that point in time, I thought, well, this seemed a little bit excessive or it was uh, a little bit trivial. You know, we had nurses that were like flashing a, you know, a light in the back of our mouth to look for, I don't know, whatever, um, you know, asking us if we'd had a temperature or an elevated temperature or anything like that. It was a lot of things that now I understand why it was important that they were doing it. But at the time it felt a little bit, um, a little bit hokey for lack of a better uh, medical word for it. But um, they actually denied entry onto the cruise ship for eight of those 24 people traveling from China because they were coming through Wuhan. And so when we were waiting on the dock to get aboard the ship, they came through with infrared scanning technology and scanned our heads and faces and things like that, kind of a camera thing to take a look at our temperature. Yeah. Um, and at that point, you know, we're down there, we're a little bit disconnected from the American media. We didn't really have much of an idea of what the, uh, the severity of things were because at that point, I think it was January 25th or 26th was the first um, account of coronavirus on the West Coast in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, by the time we ended the cruise, um, it was a lot more of a significant thing. Um, and um, by the time we got back to the U.S., of course, we really, really realized how much of a big deal it was. The crazy thing is that people on the cruise ship that I met that were there, you know, staff members, they have been still on that cruise ship to this day unable to dock and get off the cruise ship because of what's happened. Oh, um, and so they're stuck perpetually at sea because they're, you know, from a lots of different nations and things like that. There's no way to test them aboard the cruise ship. And they're just moving basically port to port, sailing around the world, still able to take on food and fuel and things like that, but no passengers. And they're stuck at sea now for something like 45, 46, 47 days, something like that, which just, you know, just blows my mind um, that they're stuck there. Wow. Um, I just can't, it's just baffling to me to think back and realize that I was there in January and having such a great time for my 40th birthday um, in Antarctica and, you know, things are just as crazy as what they are now. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, that was the beginning. Yeah, that's, that was the beginning. Uh, happy birthday, by the way. Uh, yeah, thanks. Wow. I had hoped that 2020 would not be such a bitch, but here we are. Here we are. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people have been feeling that way for a while. Uh, right. Uh, man, okay, so speaking of it being a tremendous, horrible bitch, um, what, uh, you, you said you've got an overwhelming caseload. Are you still, are you seeing other cases or are you just strictly seeing COVID patients, COVID-19 patients? So, you know, there's not any reduction. So if you think about other things that bring people to the hospital, you might have a situation where you have a stroke or a heart attack or something like that, or you have an infection. Those things still happen, of course. None mm -hmm. of that stuff gets put on pause, right. you know, because coronavirus happens. I think the general public doesn't understand the reason why there are such um, restrictions for social distancing and, and things like that is because there's no way that we can care for coronavirus patients and all those other things that are the everyday thing that brings people to the hospital. 
So if you're so unlucky to have a car accident or to have a stroke or to have a heart attack, on any normal day, if you needed life support, for instance, a ventilator, which makes the news a whole lot, if you needed that, that wouldn't be a problem. But when we have a hospital that's full of coronavirus patients that need a ventilator to breathe, if you have a car accident, a stroke, or a heart attack, you could potentially end up at a hospital where they go, well, too bad, we don't have what you need. And so this whole social distancing, this whole flattening of the curve, all of these things that you hear about that are kind of the, um, the talking points in, in the media, um, they're about kind of flattening out that, that curve or kind of um, decreasing the chance that you're going to end up at the hospital with coronavirus um, because our resources are limited. Right. And so the more uh, judicious we can be with our resources, the fewer people that are coming in for coronavirus-related things, the more likely that you are to get what you need when you come to the hospital if it's something not related to coronavirus. So there's been absolutely no reduction in the amount of things that we see that are our normal bread-and-butter hospital things that are not coronavirus-related. The only thing that's been a decrease um, in the amount of hospitalized patients are basically elective surgeries. So around the United States right now, anybody who has an an elective surgery, it has been put on hold and that's because, in, in part, because if a person comes in for an elective surgery, even if they're not having symptoms of coronavirus, many people who have coronavirus are not exhibiting symptoms. And so there's additional testing that's required to allow them to come to the hospital to get an operation if they need that. Maybe it's something like a, you know, a knee replacement or maybe a heart valve or maybe a heart catheterization um, or, you know, something related to, um, any other elective procedure, those have all been put on hold. And it's mostly because we don't know for sure who does and doesn't have the virus because we don't have the testing as readily available, um, as what we would like. And so you don't want to bring people into the hospital electively who could potentially have coronavirus and end up infecting doctors and nurses and things like that. They don't have any symptoms and they could spread the virus. So, you know, that portion of our business, so to speak, is is um, turned down right now. But we still have plenty of the people who arrive with things that are not um, not coronavirus-related, like I said, heart attack and stroke and right. things like that. So there's plenty of that going on. Um, but what we are seeing, at least at this point, is, is we are seeing the quote-unquote flattening of the curve where there have been um, fewer people coming in with coronavirus related illness, Um, and what we've also gotten a little bit better about is early on um, there was the expectation that people who came in with coronavirus were going to be requiring a ventilator going on life support immediately, Um, and we've learned with a little bit of time and patience that our experience, at least in Louisiana, is probably not the same as what it was in Italy or China or maybe on the West Coast. And so early on, a lot of people were being immediately put on the ventilator, which means that more ventilators get used, which means that fewer ventilators are available, which means that we get in a crisis um, to have ventilators available for everybody. And we've been a little bit better about learning a little bit of time and patience and 
feeling uncomfortable with abnormal oxygen levels um, to prevent people from getting on the ventilator. And so that's made our practice a little bit different um, in that now we have more ventilators available for people who are coming in for things besides coronavirus. Well, man, it's like you're like you've done this before. That's a perfect segue to my next question. Uh, what? How are you treating this? What are you What are you doing for treatment? When say say someone shows up with this, what What are the steps? Um, and I know it can vary right. drastically, but generally speaking. Yeah. So, despite what you might see on the media, um, the Trump juice, as I call it, you know, the the hydroxychloroquine and things like that. There was never, 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 never really any evidence that that was anything that was significant enough um, to hang your hat on to be a beneficial treatment. Um, I can't believe was, I can't believe you're saying this. Studies, <laughs> what's that? That's, I can't believe you're saying this. The, yeah, the, well, that's a I joke. mean, there are some studies that you know show that there might be some marginal effect. Blah blah blah. But, you know, if you look now at what the major medical journals, so here's the problem. You know, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to study what does and doesn't work. Of course. And of course. for us to know what does and doesn't work, you need two things. You need time and you need great numbers of people. And the problem is, this is something that came upon us very quickly which means that we didn't have the time. We now have the great number of people um, that we need to be able to have an idea of what does and doesn't work. But if you go back and you look at what happened in China and you look at what happened in Italy, they had a lot of people, but they didn't have a whole lot of time. And quite frankly, they were busy taking care of people and they didn't have a whole lot of time to analyze their data. And so, First and foremost, I don't think anybody in America really has any confidence about what happened in China and the data that they have to share for us about what their experience was, because I can tell you that if you look at what they report in terms of numbers of people dying and things like that, it doesn't make sense because Americans are doing a whole lot worse than the Chinese are. And so that either means that we're extremely unlucky or maybe their data is not all that um, all that accurate. And I think that most people in America believe that what the Chinese are reporting is not accurate data. I think that they're under-reporting their deaths. Um, I think that they're not reporting their demographics all that well in terms of who gets affected by this. Italy is a little bit different in the sense that, you know, the average Italian is older than the average American. And, you know, if you want to look at younger people in Italy, maybe younger people that were dying in Italy we're more likely to be people who smoke cigarettes and things like that. So the point is you can't compare any person in China to any person in Italy to any person in America because there's just enough difference in who we are as people in our own countries that you're not comparing apples and apples or oranges and oranges. And so back to your question, what do we do? What we do is very basic. I mean, if people's oxygen levels are low, we give them oxygen. Um, if people, if people's blood pressure are low, we give them medicine to support their blood pressure. There's not a magic sauce here. There's not, there's not a drug that has been proven to be beneficial. There's not something we're keeping on the shelf, despite what you see in the media, um, you know, from the president or anybody else who's in a position 
to say what might or might not work. Um, there's not a thing. There's not a thing that works besides just supportive care. So there's no magic drug. There's no vaccine. There's no antibiotic. There's no antiviral. None of that stuff um, that is the hopeful um, the hopeful therapy has proven to be beneficial. And if you look, as I said before, now that you know, I said it's about time and it's about people numbers. We haven't had a whole lot of time, but at this point, we've had numbers. Now, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, has actually done some um, some reports, some official reports based on data that's been collected by hospitals in the United States of America. It turns out that people, for instance, specifically, who get hydroxychloroquine, people who get hydroxychloroquine are more likely to require higher levels of respiratory support in the ICU, which means Mm -hmm. things like ventilators. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I understand that everybody is hopeful or wishful or whatever you want to say, that doing something might be helpful and Americans aren't people to sit around and just do nothing. And American doctors really aren't that way either. But what we do know is that sometimes just supportive care is the thing that you need. Um, Don't just stand there, do something is kind of um, something we say in medicine sometimes. But this is a situation where, you know, maybe you should just stand there and do nothing might be the right thing because sometimes the hope for treatment could be potentially worse in the long run. Mm. And that's been a hard lesson for doctors in America to learn and for Americans to understand, um, you know, there's not, there's not a treatment for this, at least that we know right now. And so the best we can do is just supportive care. And that hurts because doctors want to heal people and because Americans believe that they're entitled to treatment. But there's not a solution to this problem in that regard, at least right now. There might be some subtleties or there might be some slight benefits to certain things, um, be it antiviral medications or anti-inflammatory medications or things like that. But there's not a treatment, and that's the most frustrating thing. I mean, I put my shoes on every day to help people get better. Um, And that's really frustrating to me to show up and to say, well, you know, this is something that I have to recognize I can only do so much for. Mm. And so you do the best you can. And if it helps people get better, then that's a great thing. And if it doesn't, you have to acknowledge that there's only so much you can do. Boy, when you talked about that, uh, you know, you've been trained to do a thing and you've been uh, working your whole life to be able to respond to, to whatever the challenge is. It sounds like this is calling on everything. This this supportive care measure, to me, just sounds like good medicine, and it sounds old. It sounds like something my grandmother would have. My grandmother was a nurse, and you know, this seems like the way she would have approached it. Just like look, just help the body, keep the body alive, because the body has the the uh, the things in it which can support itself, you know, or can defeat a right. virus and if it stays alive long enough. Right. So- so one of my one of my favorite mentors, his name is Ben de Blanc, um, and he is at LSU in New Orleans. And what he has said more than one time with you know throughout all this is that doing 
the simple things incredibly well are the things that will get us through this. Yeah. And he has said it more than one time, and it means all the world to me in terms of the truth that it brings. It's really simple. It's focusing on the things that we know that we can do, and we have to do it 100%. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy simple stuff like washing your hands mm-hmm. in the hospital, out of the hospital. It's crazy simple stuff like making sure the people that are on life support have an opportunity to do a breathing exercise every morning to try to come off the ventilator. You know, it's not, if you over romanticize this whole situation, you really end up in a situation where you get far removed from the basics of what really makes things happen. And so just circling back and realizing that again, at the end of the day, just very simple things, are the things that we can control that are most likely to make the biggest impact. Yeah. And so it's been a, you know, it's been a, it's been a real lesson in getting back to basics. Um, and that's okay with me. I feel like it's not satisfactory to most of the American public because again, they think there's some special sauce in the shelf that we're holding back. Um, but it's not, it's just about being simple. It's about, making sure the basics are covered. Um, and again, you know, I, I put my shoes on to help people get better every day. Um, what you realize when you walk into the coronavirus ICU is that there are some people that no matter how hard you try, you can't make them better. And there are some people that you don't have to try and you just give them the basics that they need and they're going to get better on their own. And, you know, sorting that out early on in the course of a week is super important in terms of your mental, um, in terms of your sanity. You know, again, two weeks ago when I was in this big ICU that I'm getting ready to go back to tomorrow, you know, you walk around, it's a bed of 20 patients. Um, and you have to kind of figure out pretty early on who, who are the people that if you just do a little bit more, you can make a difference for versus who are the people that if you fall on your sword, you're not going to make a difference for. Hmm. And so you kind of in a way, because you can't be everybody's everything all the time, you have to decide where you're going to put your efforts forth because there's some people that you just can't save. And, you know, you can try, you can beat yourself up, you can, you know, you can pray, you can do whatever, you know, it takes for you to, um, to get what you need to try to do 110% for some person, but there are some people that we just can't save. And it's this, it's a real struggle to try to figure out who these people are. Um, and you know, in a week's time, the first two or three days that I'm in an ICU, that's kind of what I have to try to figure out. Who's the person where if I just keep trying, time is going to pay off versus who's a person where even more time, even more life support, even more all the things are not going to make a difference because when your resources are limited, you can't invest a hundred percent in everybody. That's the honest truth. And I don't mean to imply that there aren't people getting what they need because at this point, everybody is getting what they need. Luckily we've not been in a situation in our hospital where we've been in a situation where we haven't been able to provide the type of care that, um, that you would want for your loved one 
or that I would want for my loved one. But in terms of the emotional investment, which is what I have to think about a lot of times, you know, I, I can't, I can't invest a hundred percent emotionally in 20 patients, um, every single day. And so I have to decide early on based on the clues that I have and the days in the past where I see how people are doing, you have to kind of decide, okay, if, if the patient in bed 17 or 18 is not doing well and you've looked back and you know that there's not anything more that you can do, you just switch into a mode where your priorities are to provide comfort to them, you know, despite what's happening. And so your brain, your heart really kind of transitions to this effort to provide comfort to family members or to the patient because you recognize at that point that what you can provide is just comfort because curative treatment is not an option. And so that's been something that we do from time to time in the ICU in terms of, you know, it's not unusual for us to have to recognize people that are not going to get better, but this is, this is a whole lot more people that we're realizing we can't make better and we're spending a whole lot more time with a whole lot more people um, talking about things like comfort care or doing things like providing FaceTime visits because people can't come to the hospital, see their loved ones. Um, you know, I've taken care of fathers and sons that have died. I've taken care of husbands and wives that have died literally in rooms next to each other. Um, it's, um, it's surreal. I mean, I didn't, again, you, you prepare for this in the sense that you know that you need to be able to do this one day. But when you walk into the hospital, sometimes you kind of feel like, feel like you're in a movie. I mean, you really do. You just kind of think to yourself, is this reality? Um, and it is, it really is. It's become the new normal, which is kind of scary. I worked in an ICU today, which is a non-coronavirus ICU. Um, and I walked into rooms without wearing goggles and a mask and a, you know, head to toe, um, protective, uh, equipment. And it was strange to me because, you know, the last month is just so much ingrained to me. Um, you know, how things are with the coronavirus epidemic. Um, I felt like I was naked walking into these rooms. And that's the normal, to walk into a room and to be able to examine a patient and to talk to them and do all those things or to talk to a family member or update a family member. And none of that is the normal right now. So it's kind of this foreign concept that I've lived today for, you know, just a short shift while I'm help, helping out. So it's been, um, it's been interesting to say the least. Well, man, I can't tell you how, um, how grateful Tiffany and I are for you, just for, for what you're doing, uh, for sharing your time and your, your story with us now. Um, I, I think this sort of thing that you're telling us right now is enormously important for people to hear, not, not just because you know, there's valuable information on treatment and that sort of stuff, but it's, these are like real object lessons in what, what is compassion? You know, what is a compassionate thing to do? Uh, what what are the limits of technology? Do we need to expect technology to be the thing that saves us from any given problem? Because we, we've been conditioned for that, you know, and here's an, op, uh, an instance where technology 
isn't providing that thing that we so desperately want uh, vis-a-vis the the cure the sauce that you guys have on the on the shelf um so hearing this from you is uh i don't know man i mean this is the the horse's mouth you know um i have a tremendous amount of respect for you and what you're doing and uh i hope you stay safe i hope you get some sleep and some rest and um yeah I just before before we sign off, is there anything that you personally, you know, this is your soapbox minute to just anything that you want to say to the world, to friends, to family members, to to anyone, or something we need to know? Is there something you'd like to share? No, I just think that people need to, they need to take this seriously. I mean, Americans especially, we're accustomed to a certain amount of freedom. Um, we have a carefree attitude about a lot of things in life. And I mean, that's great. I mean, anytime I travel internationally, you know, you go someplace for a week or 10 days or two weeks or whatever, and you enjoy that. But at the end of the day, there's something about coming back to being at home in America with your safety and knowing that um, healthcare is there for you and that your safety is here and that we have a generally stable political climate, um, you know, this is something that is a whole lot different than what we're accustomed to dealing with. Um, and so Americans just need to take this seriously. I mean, you know, you can get your news from Facebook or you can get your news from certain, um, uh, news agencies and you can kind of live in your little, um, area of denial or, um, a place where what you learn is only satisfactory to what your belief system is. Hmm. You know, this is real. Doctors are not making this up. You know, the news media is trying to do its best to balance out what the truth is. And I've realized that some agencies over-exaggerate and some under-exaggerate. This is real. I mean, I, I, I am faced with things that I never thought I would be faced with. I'm seeing things that I never thought I would see in America. And the most frustrating thing to me is there's a certain segment of the American population who's living in a certain amount of disbelief about this. And that's the most frustrating thing. And again, I don't need someone to praise me for what I'm doing. I don't need someone to you know, reply on my Facebook posts or to salute me for what I'm doing. But what I do need from the average American is to have a healthy amount of respect for what's going on and for them to, you know, take the recommendations um, for social distancing and things like that and to be respectful because, you know, any anything that is less than that, you know, it puts healthcare workers at risk. You know, you might be in the community and you might have the chance to encounter a person that has coronavirus maybe one or two or three times in a week, but I'm walking into a room 20 times a day starting tomorrow, 20 times, 20 times tomorrow, I will walk into a room with a patient that has coronavirus. And that's what I'm risking. I'm risking my life. And I'm happy to do that because I signed up for this. Let me be clear. But the number of people that we're seeing in the hospital Part of it is just because of how many people are sick or how many people are not practicing social distancing and things like that. So if there's something that the American public can do 
it's to follow the recommendations to decrease the amount of people that end up in the hospital so that if you do get sick for one reason or the other, coronavirus or not, then I can help you. Because the problem is right now, I'm extremely, I'm extremely taxed. Our teams are extremely taxed. We're seeing as many people as we can see. We're working overtime. We're working extra hours. And we're working on our weeks that we don't normally work. Um, you can't make more of us. You can't make more doctors. You can't make more nurses. We're doing as much as we can. So what, what the American public needs to understand is that they need to do their part. They need to take it seriously. And the sooner they do that and the better they do that, the faster this is all going to be over with. Because the denial and the wavering and all that stuff, you know, or the compromise that people make in terms of not doing what they should, that's just going to make it a lot more, um, it's going to be spread out over a whole lot more time. And it's going to be a whole lot more painful for people. So just do your part, you know, you don't have to believe 100% about everything that's going on, but, you know, science is science, is science. It's, it, it, it's not politics, although people try to politicize it. Get your information from reliable sources, make sure that if you're seeing something that doesn't sound right, you're trying to validate it with something um, that seems a little bit more realistic. Um, you know, the, the misinformation campaigns, are really frustrating for healthcare workers because we're seeing it 100% on the front line and the deniers and the people who are trying to politicize it and stuff like that, it really is just, it really breaks my heart, um, you know, and it's hard enough to come to work and to try to do everything that we can for people and not be able to get it done because we can't fix everybody. But then when you have this subset of people who disbelieve or want to spread negative, um, information or propaganda or anything like that. It's just, it's really a, it's a stake in the heart, man. That's all I can say about that. It, it's insanely frustrating. Well, as soon as we can vaccinate for stupid, uh, the, the world will be all right. <laughs> but between now I've, and then. I've said, yeah. I've said unpopularly that this is going to be a natural selection event that's going to catch up with a lot of people. Hmm. Um, and that's the truth. And I don't mean that in a positive or a negative way. That's just, that's, that's just the facts. I mean, in Louisiana, we have a pastor of a church of 2,000 people, something like that, who's continuing to have services because he thinks he can pray the coronavirus away. Um, mm. And I, you know, I'm not a person to try to take away anybody's uh, belief system for religion or things like that. I mean, I think that's all important. Um, you know, the social threads of society, um, that's an important social thread of society uh, for some people. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you have to have a healthy regard for what science has to say about things. Um, and these people that are violating these rules and, you know, going to church and having services and, you know, thinking that they can pray a virus away, um, good luck to them because I'm not sure that it's going to work out well for them because we're seeing things happen pretty negatively for people that are practicing this philosophy in Louisiana, at least, um, I just, you know, my heart breaks for them that they can't really, uh, they're blinded by religion, I guess is the best I could say about that. They're, they're not willing to accept what, um, medical people are, are advising, um, in terms of recommendations. Um, and that's insanely frustrating because not only does it mean that they suffer at their own peril, but it means that they have the potential to spread virus to other people. Yeah. And so, you know, at the end of the day, 
um, it's sad, but you know, regardless of what you believe, um, if you show up at my hospital, I'm gonna take care of you. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you watch Fox News or CNN. I don't care. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm gonna take care of you. Um, that's that's just what I'm gonna do. That's what all my team members are gonna do. It doesn't matter how you got to me. Um, I know what I need to do to help you get better. And even though I can't do all the things and I don't have a complete solution for what you need, I'm going to do the best I can. And that's all I can do. Well, it's incredibly comforting comforting, uh, to hear from anyone, but particularly someone who is as as skilled and experienced in this as you are. And uh, I don't know, we we wish you the very best of luck. And uh, I, I don't know, I just feel like if anybody's going to be all right, it's got to be you. You know, you've got all the right stuff, right. my man. Well, uh, thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, good luck out there. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I, I just want to say that I, um, I respect you. I respect your words, and I respect your profession. And thank you so much for all that you're doing for, um, for everyone. So, and thank you for well, talking thank to you, us. Thank you, for everything that you've done for people that are also critically ill. So, we're going to get through this together. We're going to we're going to make it. Um, things are going to be different, but I think we're going to learn a lot from this. Um, and I guess that's the best that we can ask for is that we make it through, and that maybe there are some lessons that are learned. I don't think this will be the last time we have to face this. Um, so let's try to make the best of where we are, and let's make sure that we don't have too short of a memory because that's the problem in my mind. Americans have a very short memory and I'm hoping that this is something that's going to stick with them for a very long time because um, if it doesn't happen, history is very, very, very inclined to repeat itself. I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much, man. Have a good night and get some sleep. All right. Thank you. Sleep well. Good night. Bye-bye. Miles from nowhere Guess I'll take my time. Oh, yeah. To reach there. Look up at the mountain. I have to climb. Oh, yeah. To reach there. Lord, my body. Been a good friend, but I won't need it when I reach the end. Miles from nowhere, I guess I take my time. I 
not a soul in sight It's all right I have my freedom I can make my own rules Oh yeah The ones that I choose Lord, my body Has been a good friend I won't need it When I reach the end I'll take my time Oh yeah To reach there 